0: You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews from experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends and information on human rights and international humanitarian law. Today, Matthew Scott of the Raoul Wallenberg Institute will be speaking to Cecilia jimenez Mary, UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: Okay, uh, well, now we're going to begin the podcast with the Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons, Cecilia jimenez de Mary. Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, um, which is primarily focusing on uh, your role as the Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of IDPs, uh, but also to draw attention to the recently released report which you delivered to the General Assembly, uh, recently uh, on uh, internal displacement in the context of the uh, slower onset adverse impacts of climate change. So we'll certainly get to that point um, in the course of the podcast. But before we get stuck into the sort of um, substance of the work that you do, it would be nice for uh, for us to hear a little bit about your background, how you ended up being the Special Rapporteur and who is uh, Cecilia Jiménez de Maru.
2: Thank you so much for this invitation and I really welcome the opportunity to be with you today and to um, to have this podcast for uh, to hopefully to be listened by as many people as possible. Um, so my name is Cecilia and of course I'm the thing is I'm a lawyer, a human rights lawyer and international humanitarian lawyer and from the Philippines and I am very pleased to be the special rapporteur on the human rights of internally displaced persons being the first woman, the first um, from Asia. And as well, the first from the field. So my background is basically really with regard uh, working with people on the ground and trying to get their voices heard at policy uh, and, and lawmaking fora, so that they can so so that the lawmakers and policymakers can be influenced by the reality. And um, I have a very varied uh, background in being a human rights and IHM lawyer. I, I, forced migration is one of my specializations but I also specialize in other human rights issues such as transitional justice and prevention of torture.
1: Thank you. Um, now as uh, as special rapporteur now in, in this capacity you focus on the human rights of internally displaced persons. Uh, now for some of us that term and that idea is familiar, Uh, for some of the listeners it might not be so familiar. Could you just uh, help us to understand what it is to be an internally displaced person?
2: The notion of being internally displaced is a notion that has been around with us through ages but it was only in uh, 1998 when the guiding principles on internal displacement was accepted by the international community that a clear definition, a descriptive definition at that emerged. And um, being a lawyer, let me just tell you what it means legally. It means a person or group of persons who are forced or obliged or are obliged to leave their homes or places of residence, And why? Because there may be armed conflict, there may be generalized violence, maybe even human rights violations. Um, and, and what the guiding principles also term, there may be natural um, disasters, but IDPs, persons that need to flee or are forced to to leave their homes, may also be displaced because of the fact of development projects. So obviously the causes are non-exhaustive. But what is very important by being an internally displaced person is that you have no choice, but to leave the comfort and safety and security of your home and as well to go to another place where you hope to find refuge and safety. And what is important as well with being an IDP is that you do not cross an international border because once you cross an international border then that means you would be an international migrant or maybe an asylum seeker or refugee. But being IDPs places you very firmly within the jurisdiction or, or the, 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 the national boundaries of the place where you had been leaving. So just imagine being internally displaced and that is most of the time you have to leave and with that you don't take anything with you but a few stuff that you, that you can get and with the clothes on your back. And this is why we have Um, what we say internally displaced persons are all around the world and right now um, we have more than 50 million people as of last year IDMC figures that say uh, that people have been internally displaced because of armed conflict or violence alone and this does not include of course IDPs because of climate change or hazards relating to climate change and natural um, disasters and doesn't include either, um, IDPs because of development projects.
1: Using that figure, uh, which you quote from the internal displacement monitoring center paints quite a grim picture about the scale of displacement, both in terms of conflict, other forms of physical violence not in count including Mm development-related displacement, which maybe doesn't get as much focus as as conflict-related displacement. And also the displacement in the context of disasters and climate change. So there are a lot of people moving, forced to move within their own borders uh, at this point in the uh, now third decade of the 21st century. What's the outlook or I mean it seems like things are getting worse are there any bright spots?
2: Yes things are getting worse in terms, I would say very pessimistically in terms of numbers. And as, as you have new ones in your, in your uh, question, we're only barely scratching the surface when it comes to really the number of people. And you know, each, each person belongs to a family, belongs to a community. So there's a lot out there. And with such numbers being consistently high, there are at the same time, as you also uh, want to get from me, bright spots. I think the great one of the very bright spots is that there is now growing acknowledgement that internal displacement is a factor vis-a-vis the attainment of the Sustainable Development Goals. You know, leave no one behind. But internally displaced persons are really the persons who are usually being left behind because they are not part and parcel of uh, policies um, most of the time. So yes, there is not growing acknowledgement. Although what is so, so um, inadequate is political recognition of the responsibility of states for that condition in terms of prevention, protection, and solutions. So there is much more work still to be done there. So but but I think that that acknowledgement is really starting to grow and we should take that um, uh, in, in the work that we have in front of us. Another bright spot, I would say, is that there is more data and actually there is better data. I remember when I started to work on the group, these group of people, and this was way back in the late 1980s, 90s, when we used to call them internal refugees, but of course now they are uh, correctly called internally displaced persons. There was hardly any data. Um, And more and more organizations are realizing that you need to have evidence base for for um, in terms of data in order to, to respond better. However, their task is to enable, therefore, ba- better use for policy and implementation of this data for prevention and response. And I guess the third bright spot that I would like to throw on the table is that there is now, again, more recognition Uh, of the need to integrate protection and human rights into internal displacement response. However, there is a lot of work, much, much work to be done when it comes to institutionalization and provision of resource. And support at both national and international levels. And and, and I think we should go beyond the rhetoric. There's a lot of rhetoric out there, but now we really need to get um, down and and work on this rhetoric to make it a reality.
1: Now, that sounds like a huge task for a special rapporteur to carry out, but the good thing is you're not alone in this work. Uh, There are other actors. Uh, You've already mentioned the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. Two other uh, processes that might be useful to highlight at this point are the GP20 and the high-level panel on internal displacement. Could you tell us a little bit more about those processes as well as the role that you're playing in them?
2: The GP20, which is what we call the Guiding Principles um, for Internal Displacement Plan of Action, was actually a response um, that uh, I did because of the 20th anniversary of the Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement. The GPID, we call it, was um, endorsed in 1998 by the international community. And so we thought, what should we do for this 20th anniversary that would actually enable um, something more than just commemoration and so after consultations with many agencies at, uh, and and there are lots out there as you said there's the UN High Commissioner for Refugees Office, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the International Organizational Migration and of course the myriad um, humanitarian NGOs and civil society etc cetera, etc cetera. so I convened the meeting um, to enable a collaborative and a stakeholder plan of action for four years uh, for three years rather from 2018 to 2020 and we decided that because of the um, relevance of the of, of, of the myriad things that we have to look at, we concentrated on four themes and that would be, to enhance the participation of internally displaced persons um, in decisions affecting them, a theme that uh, that is very, very close to my heart um, and and in my work. The second is to uh, encourage law and policy at national and international level to protect internally displaced persons. The third is to find and enhance conditions for solutions to internal uh, displacement And last, but not the least, is to enable, again, a collaborative approach to data and analysis. And these four themes actually fall into what we would call our slogan in the GP20, which is prevent, protect, and resolve. And I'm very happy to say that the GP20, which is closing this year, and and we're now discussing how we can build on um, the gains that we've had. 20 plan of action was quite successful because it really contributed to enabling a higher attention to this theme and focusing on national implementation and not necessarily merely on international assistance. The second point that you raised was the UN high-level panel on internal displacement, and this is an initiative that was actually established by the UN United Nations Secretary uh, General, and my role there was was actually to be consulted in the the drafting and the uh, finalization of. The terms of reference for what we call the HLP or the high level panel. The high level panel is supposed to come up with um, a set of recommendations, particularly for the international community and the different states as to how to find solutions to internal displacement and I welcome this very much and in fact the terms of reference very um, specify that I have to be involved and to be one of the stakeholders that the high-level panel should be consulting and working with so I'm very happy in that role because as an independent expert of the United Nations I cannot be a member of the high-level panel because in in order to secure my independence and impartiality so I really really all of us do look forward to the recommendations that they they will be issuing by uh, next year. And we hope that those recommendations will will actually be workable and that we can use them in the different work that all of us do.
1: In that last response, you mentioned a document, which is incredibly important in this context. So it's probably uh, appropriate to ask you a little bit more about. These guiding principles on internal displacement, uh, the GP20, as you said, commemorates the 20th anniversary since their adoption in 1998. What are they and why are they so important?
2: Well, the guiding principles on internal uh, displacement is actually Composition, a conglomeration of the different international human rights standards and international humanitarian standards that are actually very relevant to the prevention of arbitrary displacement. Second, protection of the rights of internally displaced persons. And third, um, international assistance and, of course, uh, durable solutions. And the guiding principles on internal displacement as a framework is actually what one would consider for us international lawyers soft law. However, if you will look at the principles that compose the guiding principles um, on internal displacement, you will find that many of those principles are actually what we would call hard law because they are part and parcel already of international um, human rights law in IHL as obligations of states uh, because of either their ratification of the relevant international treaties, whether human rights or humanitarian law, or they may also be used cogens, for example, the prohibition of torture or the prohibition of slavery of IDPs is something that no state can actually accept as a legitimate practice. So the guiding principles of internal displacement is actually very useful. It is the basis of the work that I do as a special rapporteur um, and tasked uh, by the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council to advocate for their implementation worldwide.
1: Which brings me right into the second question that was triggered by your uh, discussion of GP20 uh, about implementation. Now, this is something that we struggle with uh, across the board in international human rights law. You mentioned the idea about focusing also on the national level, not always thinking about international uh, level action. And it's something that in in the study that RWIs recently completed, Uh, is a major challenge, uh, the implementation of international Mm -hmm. standards and even national standards at the local level where people actually are displaced. Uh, Have you got any thoughts on what measures are most effective to securing the implementation of these both international and national level standards relating to IDPs?
2: With regard to standards, um, I think that we have enough standards at our disposal, um, which provide us the benchmarks, if you want, uh, measurable benchmarks as to how far this, the, the protection of IDPs is um, being undertaken. And indeed, the implementation of this is not actually up to the international community. It is up to the states. There is a national framework, an international framework on uh, responsibility of states for internal displacement. And the very first thing that is at the top of that framework is that it is the state of the country concerned that is responsible for the protection of IDPs within their territory. And, um, and, and this is really important because the application of international standards can only be measured by its impact on the people concerned. This is what human rights is uh, all about. And it is difficult because not all states are actually exactly politically recognizing, for example, that there is internal uh, displacement in their country or that they are primarily responsible for the consequences and the conditions uh, that the IDPs find themselves in. But it is also very difficult because there's also a question of of, uh, framing, of capacity building, of budget allocations. And in the end of the day, the main issue that I see as a special rapporteur is political will. On the other hand, there is a lot of other states that have shown political will as well. And this is the reason that in the GP20 plan of action, we concentrated on those states that have shown such political will and we have showcased the work that they have done, um, whether in law and policy, data, responses, etc. And one of the major, if if I may um, advertise this on the podcast, one of the major results and outputs of the GP20 plan of action is the compilation of national practices of states on how to respond to internal displacement so I, I would invite you all to um, uh, to avail of that publication which is a, which is of course um there on the internet. So political will for me is, is really the main uh, issue. And once, however, that a government says, okay, we do need to respond to this, then that is where international the international community has to come in and support and assist the government. And of course, we also have civil society not only outside the country concerned, but also inside. So in in, in a way, it's also very much integrated into the political space of civil society and how they work with the state concerned. So it's, it's, it's a complicated picture, so to speak, but there is, I am convinced, there is no other way but to measure the real protection of IDPs based on international standards, the only way is really to look at how this is being implemented by the state concerned. If the state is really very um, uh, emphatic on their sovereignty, we actually see this principle of sovereignty not only as uh, an issue in public international law, a principle in international law, but it is a basis and the raison d'etre of their responsibility to protect their people, particularly in this case that we're talking about, internally displaced persons.
1: Now, one of the, one of the activities that the Special Rapporteur, uh, whether on IDPs or in other contexts, undertakes is country visits. uh, And we've seen over the 20 years since the adoption of the guiding principles, a number of country reports that touch upon Mm -hmm. displacement in the context of disasters and climate change. But if I'm not mistaken, this report which you've recently delivered to the General Assembly on internal displacement in the context of slower onset adverse impacts of climate change, is the first thematic report, uh, which is different from a country report. It's the first thematic report that addresses displacement in this context over the 20 years since the adoption of the guiding principles. Is that right? And can you tell us a little bit more about the report?
2: Well, I would like to actually put you to right, uh, um, Matthew, because one of my predecessors had actually made uh, a thematic report but it was entitled natural disasters, and this was very broad, and it was actually one of the basis of the report that I recently um, uh, undertook for the General Assembly. Uh, we I built on that report that was done by my predecessor, and uh, this is also one reason that I actually wanted to look at the specific set of factors for internal displacement when it comes to climate change, and that is slow onset adverse impacts of climate change. And because the developments on this subject have actually been uh, very progressive over the the years, but, but I think that I needed to push more the discussion towards internal displacement. Hey guys, we're looking at Uh, general aspects of the impacts of climate change. We're mostly looking at sudden onset. And the problem is that I see that there is one particular issue that is sort of being left behind, and that is the impact of uh, slow onset uh, climate change. And these adverse impacts, most of the time, result to internal displacement. There is also sort of a A discourse of saying, but these are not internally displaced persons, they are migrants, they etc. But I really argued in my report that so long as the person or persons have to move as per the descriptive definition of the IDPs, then that person is forced or obliged to move he or she or they are IDPs. And so climate change indeed has been on our mind, but we need to, I think, give more attention to to slow onset adverse impacts of climate change. And the other thing, the other reason I wanted uh, to look at this issue is also most of the time we have been focusing on technical responses, which are, of course, very important because, you know, you have the science to back up all of the responses that we are trying to do vis-a-vis climate change, mitigation, adaptation, and response. But I found as well that there is not enough on the human dimension, and naturally, human dimension, I mean human rights of the people who are displaced because of um, slow onset. And last but not the least, um, one of the issues on the table in the climate change discourse is loss and damages. And one of the things again that I notice is most of the time this is really concerning what I would call hard material, hard infrastructure, but we do also have soft loss and damages like cultural losses suffered by indigenous peoples. Um, effects on children's right to education and, and of course livelihood human rights in general so one of the arguments I actually try to to make is that we have to consider internal displacement as one of the uh, f- frameworks that need to be looked at when we are look- when we are um, dealing with loss and damages um, under the climate change discourse.
1: You mentioned the need to put a human uh, angle on the phenomenon. And you mentioned the particular situation of indigenous peoples. Your report takes the time to look at this kind of differential experience of uh, disaster uh, risk and climate change exposure. Uh, Can you go into a little bit more detail about how this experience of differential exposure and vulnerability manifests uh, for instance uh, taking into account the gender dimension uh, or other different ways in which people in different contexts experience this displacement risk and the experience of being displaced in this context
2: Yes, I think that's uh, a very important aspect because in addressing uh, displacement risks and responses to that, we are actually not merely looking at the impact on the environment or the forces of, of or, or, or the forces of nature, so to speak, and um, we have to be a little bit well, not just a little bit, we have to be much more nuanced when we look at the adverse impacts of disaster because they are not indiscriminate. I really take a different approach because in using a human rights-based approach, we do need to look at impact of slow-onset adverse effects of climate change on particular groups of people. One is, uh, I think you mentioned gender, and the other one's indigenous peoples. For example, on indigenous peoples, their livelihoods depend very heavily on ecosystems. And they, at the same time, they are among those who have contributed the least to climate change while suffering some of its worst impacts. The adverse effects of climate change in general, not just low onset, actually threaten their ancestral lands, their livelihoods, their cultures, customs, religious practices, identity, and language. I have met many indigenous peoples who actually had to flee from their ancestral lands for different reasons, not just climate change um, disasters. But this is always the consequence. They lose their identity. Um, And and because their identity is so much um, linked to the land, to their ancestral lands. Now, in different parts of the world, indigenous ancestral lands and sacred sites are already being submerged and disappearing as a result of sea level rise, for example, as well as stowing permafrost and land ecosystems are being affected wildlife as well because and and these actually affect the indigenous people's subsistence livelihoods. So they have to move and I have met um, many of them who are really also being frustrated because with their ancestral lands not anymore being able to support their ways of lives, their communities are disintegrating and the young people are actually leaving. Now, with regard to women, let me just be very specific about this, that owing to the gender roles and unequal distribution of resources, which is a reality all over the world, women and girls might be particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change and they are actually at higher risk of violence during displacement. And in some communities, they might be involved in gathering or producing food and collecting water. And these are activities that are more directly affected by slow onset processes. So these are just two examples, as you have rightly picked them out, with regard to the differing um, effects of, um, of uh, climate change on depending on, on who they are. And, and naturally, we have others, you know, uh, IDPs who have disabilities, the elderly, sometimes the elderly and the people um, with disabilities are actually, you know, left behind um, because they cannot be accommodated in the forced displacement and they suffer some of the worst impacts because they could not leave. And then, of course, you also have um, other um, groups of people, like children and the youth, um, and this is particularly also very disconcerting because the effects of climate change actually disrupt their normal growth and development.
1: In in the report and in in the podcast, uh, as we're speaking now, you. Clearly endorse the adoption of a human rights-based approach to uh, dealing with this phenomenon. Could you explain what this perspective brings in addition to what's already being done on the ground in the context of disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation and sustainable development? Haven't haven't these three areas got it covered already? Or is there something that the human rights-based approach brings that is uh, Uh, adding value to the protection of people from displacement during displacement and facilitating durable solutions.
2: A human rights based approach uh, really looks at the impact of climate change related displacement directly on the enjoyment of human rights by those affected and uh, the what we call HRBA, human rights-based approach, it aims to, at protecting such rights, which are obligations of the state's concerned. There is actually extensive evidence already of the widespread impacts of climate change on the enjoyment of human rights, such as the rights to life, health, housing, food, water, education, um, cultural rights, as I have mentioned, collective rights, particularly those of indigenous peoples and their right to self-determination. I mean, there's a long list of rights that we have in the Universal Declaration um, of Human Rights. And the impacts contribute to displacement um, and displacement further impacts the enjoyment of such human rights. So it's a continuum that sometimes go into ever-increasing increasing, intensive uh, circles that, in the end, the people are left to fend for themselves. So the impacts of displacement on the enjoyment of human rights are extensive. And and I think, as I have uh, mentioned, a human rights-based approach also looks at the differentiated impacts on specific groups. And I had described to you, uh, particularly, uh, the impacts on Indigenous peoples and women
1: you also mentioned when you were talking about gp20 and you you go into it in the the report as well as in other work that you've done uh the centrality of participation to this approach uh what is it uh that makes you consider participation to be such a fundamentally important element of a human rights based approach uh and how does it work in this context
2: well the human rights-based approach also recognizes the great agency of people themselves and also of particular groups in the society. In fact, as I think I mentioned, that is very close to my heart because of my background, um, where I speak to people and most of the time there is a dichotomy between what people on the ground need and say and what their rights are to the responses at local and national level. So it is really important that they participate in decisions that affect them. That's their human right. In many cases as well, in this particular context that we are speaking about, human beings, human people like you and me, the people affected displays display remarkable strength, resourcefulness, and resilience in the face of disasters and displacement, despite the challenges, the barriers, and discrimination that they face. Indigenous peoples as well, most of the time, they always have, sorry. Indigenous peoples have traditional knowledge and valuable perspectives that can contribute to the design of programmatic responses, disaster risk reduction strategies, and durable solutions. So a human rights-based approach recognizes that people are also resources by themselves in how to prevent um, displacement where it's possible and as well as how to protect IDPs. Indigenous Peoples, let me just go back to Indigenous Peoples, they have actually developed much many coping strategies that can inform approaches uh, to climate change adaptation and disaster risk reduction, and they play a central role in environmental protection and climate action. And women, since we're talking about women again, um, they have played and continue to play a crucial role in climate action. Um, They're usually in the forefront, in fact. In many instances, women have contributed their unique local knowledge about agriculture, conservation, management of natural resources, and in positions of political authority, actually, what women have often championed more environmentally responsible policies. So the first report that I actually presented to the General Assembly in 2017 was about IDP participation. And I was really surprised and, and gladdened by the positive reception that this report has gained from uh, the international community. And this is something I think that has now picked up a lot where when we have expert panels, most of the time we now have internally displaced persons on those panels. Because I personally consider IDPs themselves as being experts on their own positions rather than just us who are experts um, from the outside. So yes, I'm a champion of IDP participation and I believe that we cannot um, go about our work to protect internally displaced persons without them. Whatever work we have to do has to be not for them necessarily but with them. I think that is the most responsible approach that we can take when we're dealing with the issues we are confronted with in addressing internal displacement.
1: What do you hope will be the impact of this report in particular on displacement in the context of the slower onset adverse impacts of climate change?
2: Uh, Well, like any of the reports that uh, we mandate holders of special procedures mechanisms of the United Nations um, have to do, our task to do, we would like that our report, a report like this, is particularly uh, taken up. And because also the issues are very relevant in our times, not only for now, but also for the future. And particularly in the national and local integration of the findings and the recommendations that I have made into this report, into law and policy and of course into implementation. I made a lot of recommendations in the report, actually not just for states, but also for the international community. And this is also the reason I welcome opportunities like this that you have kindly uh, provided to me through this uh, podcast. And um, and I would like as well that the findings and recommendations that I have made are are also uh, recognized and implemented um, by the international mechanisms that are dealing with climate change, including the Loss and Damages um, uh, Body, because we we do have to really insist on the implementation of a human rights-based approach to climate change mitigation, adaptation, and responses and management. If we will expect changes and ownership by the people themselves in addressing climate change. And the second point I'd like to make is that I really hope that with this report, we can further facilitate the participation of the affected populations themselves. And that is internally displaced persons in this regard, and as well the support of civil society in assisting the governments and providing um, more cohesiveness to the actions of the international community on this very important issue we are confronted with today and in the future.
1: Thank you so much. Now, uh, we're in December uh, and you've delivered the report to the General Assembly and hopefully we will see uh, different initiatives to try to Uh, get uh, recommendations implemented, Uh, you will nonetheless continue addressing other aspects of internal displacement within the context of your mandate. Have you got plans for 2021? What might those be?
2: (laughs) My mandate, um, my holding of this office, of the mandate of the Special Rapporteur ends on October 31, 2022. So actually for 2021 and 22, of course, I will continue to work on the many issues that they have already brought to the fore. But I would like to also give more time to certain issues, and these issues are the following the prevention of arbitrary displacement, which will actually be the theme of my next report to the General Assembly. And uh, and, and, and part and parcel of the building on what uh, we have done is also enhancing collaboration. I would also like to strengthen the work that I'm doing on ensuring the um, appropriate and responsible discourse on the humanitarian development and peace nexus on how humanitarian policies development policies and peace policies and the actors therein who who undertake that can actually work together in response to uh, the human rights of internally displaced persons and last but not the least is something that has always that I've always worked on But um, in this particular mandate that I'm holding, I would like to to see what we can do about it. And that is the responsibility of non-state armed groups when it comes to the internally displaced persons within the territories that they may be controlling. Um, This is a reality that we're facing right now in many parts of the world where um, many non-state armed groups are becoming powerful And are actually being in the forefront of the displacement of internally displaced persons. So I think more attention needs to be given on that particular issue. So there's a lot, Matthew. And and the the road is long, but, but I hope that whatever I can do, we can also do together. Thank you so much.
1: Cecilia Jimenez de Mary, special rapporteur on the human rights of internally displaced persons. Thank you so much for contributing to this podcast and uh, we wish you all the best with your endeavors.
2: Thank you so much
0: again and good
2: luck to everybody.
1: Thank you.
0: That was Cecilia Jimenez de Mary, UN special rapporteur on the human rights of internally displaced persons. This has been on Human Rights. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media and make sure to follow us to be notified when we release our next episode. For more information on the latest updates on Raoul Wallenberg Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you for listening.